Hey man, this is God's territory, and you got five seconds to get off. I tell you, you start counting five like a sucker. One, two, three. So you're tuned in to Don't At Me here on FBI Radio, the podcast that discusses intersectionality, identity, and what it means to basically live in Australia when you're not considered part of the dominant culture. Because trust and believe, honey, it is not always easy. Um, I'm very excited to be back. Like, look, as you can probably hear in my voice, I'm feeling summer. I'm feeling how close the summer break is like I'm literally fanging for a break you know I've been feeling it I'm ready I just wanted to give you a little FYI before we jump into everything and talk about what today's episode's about just so you're aware I want to preface this entire episode with letting you know that this entire playlist has been curated by Australian Summer so If you've ever wondered, like, especially if you don't live in Australia and you've wondered what an Australian summer feels like, you're welcome. I've just given it to you in four songs. Like, not completely, but basically. Like, almost exactly the same, except I don't have a way to convey what living in a nanny state feels like. But other than that, we're very close. So once again, you are welcome. But I'm very excited about today's episode. And I know I say this every episode, but I'm really lucky that I get to interview such amazing people. And today is absolutely no different. I'm talking with Rez Gadi. Rez Gadi, like was actually born in a United Nations refugee camp in Pakistan as her parents fled from persecution in their homeland of Kurdistan because her parents are political activists. They fought against the persecution of Kurds and fought for Kurdish rights and independence in Iran before fleeing to Pakistan. And Rez has in many ways followed suit. She was awarded the Young New Zealander of the Year Award in 2017 for her services to human rights. And she is New Zealand's first female Kurdish lawyer and advocates for refugees and human rights. And so not only is she New Zealand's first female Kurdish lawyer, she's now studying at Harvard Law School, uh, which is wild. Like, I can't even imagine my closest understanding to Harvard Law School was Legally Blonde. So I'm really excited to talk to her a little bit about what that's like. And not only is she doing all of that, and I'm sure many other things that I haven't even mentioned, Rez is really big on supporting young refugees um, to gain access to higher education because she does believe education is crucial to changing the future for refugees. And with that in mind, she founded Empower, which is a charitable organization aiming to address the underrepresentation of refugee students in tertiary education. I think it's amazing when we hear sort of incredible success stories such as these, and we don't hear very positive stories in the news that often, especially, you know, given the climate in Australia, it's more important than ever now with this sort of white nationalist movement growing, with the Aboriginal deaths in custody, with the way people of refugee backgrounds on Manus and Narrow Island are being treated. It's really important 
to make sure that we tell these stories and we talk to people that are doing the work so yeah looking forward to chatting further when we're back this is don't at me Tiembla en sus entrañas, enamorada. 
So that was Chanja via Sequito's remix of Jose Laralde's Quime Nequan, and my pronunciation was shocking. But, anyways, I'm in the studio with Res Gardi, human rights lawyer, activist, in my eyes, person of the year. Res, you're doing all this amazing work, including going to Geneva to speak at the UN. And now you're out here studying your master's at Harvard Law School, as well as running a charitable organization for refugee youth. How did you get into all of this advocacy work? Like, I know that your parents, you know, obviously runs in your blood to a certain extent, considering your parents are political activists. But how did you fall into all of this? Well, I mean, okay, to be quite honest with you, I didn't start out at all as always, you know, wanting to advocate for refugees. In fact, for a long time in New Zealand, I was uh, embarrassed of this refugee background. I didn't want to identify as refugee. I didn't want to identify as Kurdish. I just wanted to be a New Zealander. And so for a long time, I suppressed that aspect of my identity and just try to try to fit in and be as Kiwi as possible. But it first started when I visited Kurdistan and I met my cousins and grandparents and everyone for the first time. I saw my cousins who were very similar ages to me but led such different lives. You know, there were some of them that were working on farms 24-7 that were um, married at very young ages and had children. So also, and then a huge almost all of them talking about education as if it was this unattainable dream that it was just this amazing thing that they aspire to but would never get and then I was kind of sitting there like I have all that in New Zealand and I'm not even aware of this so I think that trip triggered something in me when I went back to New Zealand I realized that there was nothing different between me and all those thousands and millions of young people that are displaced and have no access to any of these things. The only difference was that I was one of these lucky people that got resettled. Mm. So that that uh, realization was quite powerful, but also made me feel really powerless. Like, what do I do about all this? But it, it did start me down this path of advocating and joining all sorts of groups and you know, organizations that had humanitarian um, aspirations. But you know, in the beginning, it was just volunteering with organizations like Amnesty International and, you know, UN Youth in New Zealand and the Red Cross. Um, but I think things again changed when I was invited to Geneva as part of this global refugee youth consultations because I realized I met all these people, you know, there was a broad spectrum. There was, for example, me on the one end of the spectrum that had been resettled in New Zealand for such a long time and then way on the other end, someone who had arrived literally straight from Kakuma refugee camp to Geneva. Wow. And there were all these young people that were just doing mind-blowing things from their refugee camps and it made me think wow we're so useless and like I've got all this stuff in New Zealand all these resources and I'm doing nothing so I think that it's just these kind of thoughts I was like we need to do more we need to do more what can we do obviously work has led to you being invited on several occasions to speak at the UN about the needs of refugee youth what exactly does that Entail. I, I like to call it a global youth uh, movement because it started with a group of young refugees all around the world um, and we all led consultations in our own countries and then got together at the regional level, then at the global level to share those findings. And so then 
the Global Refugee Youth Consultations went on to form the um, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees um, Global Youth Advisory Council. And so there's just a group of young people in the council and then those that support the council working on youth issues every year in Geneva and making sure that youth voices are heard at these high-level meetings. Yeah, amazing. I love how casually you say that. That's huge. Um, I guess just for a little bit of context... Uh, I actually met Rez at a conference that we both attended recently. She, so you were invited to speak. I was there uh, in my full-time work capacity, I guess you could say, as my work had sort of partnered on this conference. So I'd been working on it for a fair few weeks. But when I saw you speak, you spoke a lot about, well, on these panels, you spoke a lot about the importance of meaningful engagement, especially when having those kinds of high level conversations, which you do all the time, uh, you know, at the UN with community leaders, with decision makers. So what exactly, like, can you break down maybe what you're sort of talking about when you talk about meaningful engagement? Well, I mean, to me, it seems common sense when you're talking about solutions to some of these global issues that you would have the people that have experienced it tell you what worked and what didn't work and to be part of the solutions. So I think meaningful engagement to me means that people with lived experience are there every step of the way, not just for consultations, not just for storytelling and evoking emotion, um, but actually as experts in this regard. And they're at, you know, from identifying the issues all the way through to coming up with solutions and implementing them. That's what meaningful engagement to me. No, not tokenistic. Oh, we'll, we'll let them talk and we'll hear their voices and then the experts will deal with this. Yeah. No, that's a very... And I'm just, yeah, honestly so sick of seeing that because... It's everywhere. It's so annoying. <laughs> there are reasons why these issues have not been solved because well, people it. that have never experienced it are trying to come up with solutions. Well, that's it. And they try to do it through their lens <laughs> yeah. as well, but they think that they understand. You don't understand if yeah. you haven't lived it. Well, that's it. <laughs> and that's a part of being a good accomplice or ally mm. is being able to create space, which is something that you also made reference to yeah. a lot. Like being able to step down and knowing when... Exactly. You know, you might not actually know best on this particular exactly. issue and it's okay and it is okay and it it's great to have allies and advocates in all regards mm. my three guiding principles are as people that are advocates they need to know when it's appropriate for them to do the work for you know their um, the people they're advocating for mm. for example here at refugees when they need to be working in partnership and when they just need to completely like leave just leave the space open <laughs> for people to do their own work so those are my three guiding principles <laughs> I love it take heed people take heed So I guess that leans into the idea of creating access when there are barriers that might hinder people from being able to engage meaningfully. So for context, when Rez and I first met at the conference, we did touch on the fact that we were both very privileged in the sense that we were attending a conference filled with decision makers, politicians, academics and experts from all around the world. But we were both very aware of the fact that not everyone is able to attend these conferences because conferences first of all are generally quite expensive like sometimes heading to like you know a grand a thousand three hundred and that's one person like you know I understand there's a lot of costs that go into coordinating a conference given the amount of people that attended there was over 800 delegates it was huge it's expensive you're getting your like lunch and breakfast catered 
So there's a lot that goes into it. So I don't want to discredit that. But, you know, let's also be frank about it. Conferences aren't accessible because not only, you know, do they not invite the people that should be there? It feels like sometimes we're preaching to the choir. They're sometimes really boring as well and quite dry because they're very academically minded and use a lot of unnecessary complex jargon that you probably don't need to have the sort of conversations that we need to be having. Having said all that, I'm really curious about how you would go about making an event more accessible for the people that we need in the room that aren't always there. So, I mean, if we wanted really to have participation from um, parts of, you know, society that we don't normally, that actually need to be there, that are probably having... Um, have the most to contribute from lived experience yeah. or um, whatever it may be. Well, firstly, the conference format mm. doesn't necessarily work for a lot of people. It's this <laughs> very, very, exactly. So it's this very um, elite kind of um, for, I don't know, people that t- tend to see things from a particular lens. You know, it's this mm. either academic or very corporate kind of yeah. environment. And that necessarily doesn't appeal to people from, you know, younger social demographic groups or from people that are not comfortable in these conference, you know, being all formal and speaking in that setting. But I mean, if we couldn't change the format of the conference, other ways to get people involved would be firstly the cost and the venue. We've got these consultations in Geneva every year that are supposed to be talking about refugee issues, yet every year the people that should be there the most, that are the most vulnerable from the refugee camps around the world get their visas denied so then they're not even able to come to the forum where it's held to voice their concerns so we need to be really thinking about where where are we holding these events are Mm. they accessible in terms of like physical travel but then also like these costs at this conference we attended many people that i work with in the community would never be able to afford it yeah likewise it would be literally like a month's salary for some people (laughs) it's ridiculous um so i mean organizations need to do more of sponsoring and i know there was an attempt at this particular one but i don't think it should just be the conference organizers that are sponsoring for me i think every single person that's participating should think about having like a scholarship when they buy a ticket having one available for someone else to attend with them and that should be donated to someone that couldn't otherwise afford to go to these things and we've got this thing called festival for the future in new zealand that does a good job of this so if you're someone that can afford a ticket you you select an option whether you give like a 50 percent discount to someone else or a full discount to someone else if you've got a corporate buying your ticket you decide how many free tickets you want to include in that so there needs to be more schemes like that to get Mm -hmm. people um involved but honestly i think I'm thinking about some of the like amazing young people that I work with who probably wouldn't feel comfortable speaking out at a conference. Yeah. It's just not, you know, a setting that's very inviting for no. lots of people. So, so we, it's quite academic. Mostly. Exactly. So we need to be thinking about other formats and um I don't know, I've used, recently gotten into kind of design thinking and using innovation as a method of um, coming up with solutions. Yeah. And that can be a fun way to work with people from all different age groups and backgrounds. Mm. And it sounds really fancy, but design thinking really is just putting humans at the center of your approach. So, yeah, it's not as extreme as I think people try to make out um, that it is. <laughs> 
What are some like examples of design thinking? Like I attended this um, innovation lab where we were trying to come up with solutions for the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Mm. And we had a group of us that were from all parts of the world, very different backgrounds and um, like in terms of expert areas. Um, And Deloitte actually had created this... um, the, basically this like uh, booklet of all these different activities you do and they're pretty fun like they're team building stuff or it's like posing questions and the ways to frame your problem um, so it's it was like a, a guide and I'm sure it's available online but um, it's basically a step by step guide like first here you get with your t- group you find out about each other to find out who what skills people have yeah. and where people are the most confident and then you move on to the next thing let's frame the problem instead of being like these are the problems let's identify the user or the human in this regard what is the problem for that person that individual that community and then you just go through all these steps to try figure out possible solutions and the thing that I love the most about this this process was we had this activity called yes and so when people propose ideas you're not allowed to say no that won't work or no I don't like that you have to say yes and and build right. on it is that like and improv it sounds like something you do in like an improv it class kind of, it, it kind <laughs> of is but it's like for solutions and yeah, for, right. for that kind of thing so it's it can be quite fun but then by the end of it we came up with an app to address education issues in camps in Kenya and Uganda wow. so like it's a fun way to do it it gets everyone involved and it's very creative um, and allows people to say their ideas without fear because you're not allowed to reject anything you know right. even if it's and there's actually an activity within that um Within that, where you have to actually come up with every idea, regardless of how stupid it is, the more stupid it is, the better, because you put down every crazy idea, and then you kind of vote to eliminate. So there are ways, I think, that you can get groups together thinking without being in this, like, formal conference setting. Yeah. Well, yes, and. (laughs) And I did that entire thing in my pajamas, so. (laughs) That sounds great. (laughs) All, like, a hard day work in pajamas. Yeah. Like, my perfect My dream.
just experienced the smooth stylings of Dorothy Ashby with Afro Hopping from the 1968 album Afro Hopping. Again, I'm out here. Summer is changing me. I'm drunk on the sun, but I'm here with Rose Gardy. We're talking about the term refugee, which is highly politicized term that carries a lot of contention because of the way that people choose to use it. Like, I'd never actually questioned the term refugee until fairly recently when I spoke to some former refugees who in my eyes are Australians now because they've migrated here and they've, uh, you know, they live here permanently. But the group that I consulted with, it was within a work capacity and they were really against the term refugee as they felt it was a label that they couldn't shake and that it didn't define them. It was just a part of their journey. So I guess with that, I'm curious as to what the word refugee means to you. Yeah, this is a really interesting issue because this is one that I've also had heaps of conversations with and also thought about a lot myself. When I wanted to deny that refugee term and did not want to be associated with it, the thinking behind it was because it was around the time of 9-11 that things got really bad for me in New Zealand. Like. Before that, I just blended in. No one kind of noticed me. But then all of a sudden, I was that person from that part of the world and honestly suffered a lot of discrimination and backlash because of that. And the images of refugees you were seeing were always people in their most vulnerable state. You know, there were people at the probably the most vulnerable and weakest of their lives. The images are always of people. I don't know. It's it's trauma. It's sadness it's all these like negative kind of feelings of despair the images are always about people that are basically their clothes kind of ripped and they're crying and you know it's really sad (laughs) and I didn't want to be associated with that because I was like well that's not me you know I'm I'm not like that yeah but then as I grew older I realized actually this this refugee term needs to be redefined Mm. because right now it is being used as, you know, just a word to embrace trauma and helplessness. Whereas I thought, actually, the fact that I've been through this journey has made me so so much more powerful and I have so much more resilience because of it. That journey has, has created, you know, a, a part of me that is able to withstand all sorts of things because I'm like, I've faced this adversity. I faced so much worse. I can deal with anything now. Yeah. So actually now my thinking has shifted almost you know entirely because now I'm like well no we need to redefine it as a term that embraces resilience and strength mm. and that journey is part of who I am and, and and it's shaped who I am today and although I've been in I'd been in New Zealand for 20 years I was still referred to as a refugee so I understand that term you know I'm no longer legally a refugee I'm a New Zealand citizen but that term has come to redefine me and instead of fighting it now I've chosen to embrace the term but define it how I want to define it. And in embracing that term you've gone on to create the refugee-led youth organization Empower which now has three locations across New Zealand. Could you talk us through Empower and the work that you do? Yeah, so um, Empower, it's a uh, youth-led charity trying to address the underrepresentation of refugee youth in higher education in New Zealand. So we found that despite all these opportunities and resources, young refugees were not making it 
all the way through high school, let alone to university. So basically it's um, yeah a mentoring program for these young people and we do capacity building workshops focusing on different set of skills each month. So yeah, it's pretty cool. So just for clarity, when you're talking about capacity building workshops, what are maybe some examples of what a capacity building workshop might look like at Empower? You know, running a workshop, we had we had a group of people who were really good at sign language, you know, and you would think that's got nothing to do with refugee background, but sign language is really critical for a lot of people. And so the more people that are aware, the better. So we had a group of people that come in and teach sign language to our group of refugee youth. Yeah. Run a workshop on that. We had another group come in and teach Māori, the Indigenous language of New Zealand. So there are ways that may not seem, you know... Um, when you think about it, it's not something that comes to mind straight away. But you can offer whatever skills you have and it could be put to use. I actually also really love that you do Māori classes because it's really important, you know, that we always have connection with the First Nations peoples of any land that we're on. So, yeah, that's really cool that you also arrange something like that. I do also remember you mentioning this amazing two young men that you'd met through your work with the UN who had started a school in Uganda at a refugee camp. Do you reckon you could tell us about that? Yeah, so there were these two young men influenced me, you know, and inspired me in so many ways. These two young guys were basically sitting idle in their refugee camps because there weren't enough skills for everyone. And they always, you know, were asking, like, can we have access to schools? Can we learn? Can we do something? And they found that nothing was happening. So they decided to take matters into their own hands. And they created this um, organization called Kobadwa's International um, Organization for to Transform Africa. And basically they formed all these partnerships. They talked to local organizations and they organized for these young people to attend a local school 90 kilometers away and then to live with local people in that town um, and found you know all these different things to make it work uh, eventually 600 people got to finish high school because of their program and now they're partnered up with like major major corporations like um, um MasterCard and they've got scholarships for these young people to go from Africa to universities all around the world so it's just you know mind-blowing they did this from their refugee camps that's that's so incredible I love that they're in a refugee camp and they've now put 600 people through school when I hear stuff like that it ignites this fire inside of me because it really just shows me the power of determination it's like when you are ready to you know change something there's so much that you can do to actually change it. I do want to come back to something that you said before when you were talking about um, people learning Auslan and people not thinking that, let me say, people assuming that people of refugee backgrounds wouldn't be interested or wouldn't have a need for Auslan. And I think that's something that frustrates me a lot. It's easy to forget, and a lot of people do it, is we silo things. So you Mm. might be either just a refugee, like you're considered just a refugee, Mm. or just somebody with a disability, or just somebody who identifies as LGBTIQ+. How do you, so within your, especially within the Global Youth Action Group that Mm. you're a part of, um, how do you ensure that you really look at everything with an intersectional lens Mm. and that you're inclusive within everything that you're doing when discussing refugees like even on the board there's 
people of all sort of backgrounds. Is that correct? Yeah. So I think um, that it's representation that's critical. So as advocates, we can say we need to um, be open to having, you know, all all people um, included in you know the solutions. But I, as an able-bodied person, don't know. You know what someone with a disability necessarily needs. So we need self uh, representation in these settings, and I think that's the most powerful. So within these kind of um, like the global compact, uh, when we're discussing solutions or what kind of things need to be included, there need to be people that represent all diverse backgrounds and experiences within that conversation. Otherwise, again, it's just not inclusive it's not well yeah that's even it. if you you raise these issues yes you've raised <laughs> them but who was there to actually represent that community and i mean and it's that's difficult because even as individuals you know i can't purport to re- uh, represent all refugee youth well that's it yeah so it's just having a diverse group because it's never going to be entirely perfect well that yeah but the more people you have with diverse backgrounds and experiences, the better that conversation is. You just come up with things that you would never otherwise, having not experienced those things. There are just simply things that would never come to my mind, even though I consider myself someone very open, that would never come pop into my mind if I don't have to think about those things on a daily basis. Mm. So it's just a fact of life, and you need to include people at every step. Yeah, in that regard, it's about acknowledging privileges as mm-hmm. well. We all have privileges. We do. And people get really upset about they that word. Do. But we all have privileges. We do. And it's, it's relative, you know? I mean, when I'm sitting with someone from New Zealand who is born and raised in New Zealand with, um, you know, New Zealand parents, in that regard, me as a refugee, you know, they, they've got a position of privilege. But then if you add someone to the conversation and there is someone with a disability of refugee backgrounds, I'm privileged in that scenario. Yeah. So I don't know why people are so, so much contention around about it. this <laughs> topic. We all have privileges. Identify them <laughs> and use them well, in a positive way. That's it. <laughs> I've had lots of my friends who are white who, who have said things like, Yes, but I'm I'm not wealthy. I'm poor. Or yeah, I'm like, but that's maybe. not what it's, it's not about. How much money you have? White privilege is not about your bank account. No. God, I'm sure they wish that it was sometimes, yeah. but it's not. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, with going to Harvard Law School, what's that been like? Uh, it's been a really cool experience, mainly because of just the resources that school has and the kind of people it can bring in for speakers. Like, the kind of events I've been to, I would have never imagined. I mean, just a week ago, I went to an event where Ban Ki-moon spoke, the former Secretary General of the wow, United Nations. Okay. And then we had the President of Colombia, who um, was a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, who was the one negotiating peace with FARC during, wow. you know, after a 60-year conflict. So they're just, like, phenomenal people That's that so come fun. there. Yeah, and give talks and you're just like hanging out I'm like okay I'm going to take a photo with this president like cool wow that never so, happened at my uni ever <laughs> no neither neither did it at mine and also just like the amount of courses on offer um, I went to Auckland Law School before mm. and I took every single course that was related to human rights and international law which was three courses right okay <laughs> and then here at Harvard we've got I mean I had more than 200 courses just in the human rights, 500 courses at the law school to choose from. Wow. So many professors, so many expertise, people that have been litigating on, you know, one of my professors was a um, counsel on the apartheid litigation in South Africa. That's ridiculous. It's crazy. The kind of work they've done, it's crazy. Wow. So 
rather it's not just about you know um the studying and the courses it's the environment and the mm. kind of people that come in and the connections you're with people from all around the world and I'm just looking around my classroom like one of you are going to become a president of some country one of you is going to become like a supreme court judge of your country one of you is going to be, be like you, a- <laughs> to be honest <laughs> but yeah it's it's very cool wow do you think that that means that you have a sort of a different level of discussion within your just like within your with your peers the sort of discussion that you have given what you're taught and who you're surrounded by mm. would you say that you'd have very deep conversations related to humanitarianism and race relations and it's definitely enriched the conversation because previously I was in a human rights bubble in New Zealand and while you know they're all incredible we they all had the same kind of upbringing and similar views and they had the same lens on in terms of looking at human rights issues around the globe whereas now I'm surrounded by people who've worked in human rights in Pakistan and Zambia and um you know, in Latin America and all parts of the world, that just means they have a different perspective, and yeah. they raise things that I wouldn't would not think of otherwise. That considerations and even viewpoints. You, you I think sometimes when you're in this kind of work, and if you consider yourself liberal, we can we can kind of get a little bit um, presumptuous about beliefs and what the the oh. right viewpoint is yes. whereas now I've met liberals and human rights activists from other parts of the world and they don't agree with me so I'm like oh so there is a way to have a different you know view and still be liberal and still have human rights at the forefront of your mind so that would be fantastic it's, to be yeah. surrounded by that but I will add there's also some people that I'm kind of like you're supposed to be among you know the top academics of your country and some of the things you say are problematic so I think we've got both extremes there are some people I'm kind of like oh my god like how have you how have you gotten here and have those views like that's so archaic which is terrifying it is terrifying we don't want them to be the next supreme you don't want them to be world leaders when they've got these horrendous views Yeah, yeah So, I mean, I guess that's the beauty of diversity and also means that sometimes you get some views that are quite extreme on mm-hmm. the other end. But I guess, I don't know, I was going to try to look at it positively, but that's very scary. Yeah. But at least you're there as well as your good peers. <laughs> I think the good people sort of. hopefully outnumber. <laughs> well, that's it, yeah. I'm going to be talking to Rez about embracing your cultural heritage um, and your identity. We're also going to be touching on how we can um, contribute and assist people of refugee backgrounds want that help. Also, just want to put this out there. I would highly recommend not just asking anybody that you know that is of a minority background or experiences marginalization because of their identity, how you can help them. It's called Google Babe, so use it. But anyways, this is Carnito by Los Hios de Sol. I absolutely love this song. It has warmed me up during many winters. I first heard the track uh, on volume one of the Roots of Chicha album, which was released in 2007 and comprises of amazing psychedelic cumbia from across Peru. I would definitely recommend you check that album out especially if you like dancing and feeling like you live in a perpetual summer. (laughs) 
one thing I failed to sort of touch on before when you spoke on not wanting to identify with your cultural heritage was how you came to embrace your cultural heritage. So I know that many of us have probably gone through this same journey of almost self-loathing or, you know, internalized racism, which sort of stems from living in a society that like insists on telling us that we are other. Um, How do you get from hating being identified as someone of a refugee background or as someone that's not a New Zealander? Um, You know, I know you spoke about going to back to Kurdistan, which also sort of helped in shifting your perceptions of yourself but how did you come to embrace the many beautiful facets of your identity honestly it was it was quite a journey because i really wanted to fight this identity not just being a refugee but also just being different like being ethnically different Mm. not being your typical new zealander and i went to the point where i denied it so much that you know i started lying about where i was from so i would I made up that I was born in New Zealand, that I only spoke English, that I'd never been outside New Zealand. And yeah, then right. it was, yeah, it was serious. And then people people would inevitably say, well, yeah, you have a really strong Kiwi accent, but you don't look Kiwi. Never figured out what a Kiwi looks like, but hey, <laughs> um, I don't look it. So I would just be like, well, yeah, guess where I'm from. And whatever they said, I would just be like, yeah, that's right. Like, how did you know? Right. So I honestly, at some point I was... Spanish. At some point, I was Greek. I was uh, Persian, Arab, Indian, Maori. Um, I was like Brazilian. You name it. I I had been that at some point. <laughs> but it was just like this mechanism to fight who I really was. Um, I even learned Spanish to go along oh, with wow. that. Oh wow! Yeah. Well, so I was, know, really you, 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 I was really dedicated. I was really dedicated to fighting my identity. I but, love how invested you were. I learned so much geography. <laughs> But the thing is, yeah, I've, the reality is I've resented all those differences, being a different you know, race, being a different um, religion, having a different name and looking differently. And it was, I'm, as I mentioned before, that trip to Kurdistan that made me realize, you know, the beauty of my culture and my people and the, the history of the Kurdish people, the oppression and the injustices that we'd faced. But it was a very slow move into you know embracing this it wasn't something that happened overnight that you know i flew home and i was like yeah i'm kurdish guys yeah but it was and it was slowly realizing the strength and um the diversity of thought that i bought by virtue of having this refugee background having lived was you know being born and living in pakistan for the first seven years of my life and then being raised in a kurdish family i think and those things changed me because i was like well within new zealand i was kurdish because of you know all these intricacies that I had of my um, culture and identity, but then when I would go anywhere else, I was from New Zealand. So it was this weird. Well, I'm not Kurdish entirely because I don't fit in there. I'm too Western, but then I don't fit in entirely in New Zealand because I'm like different. Yeah. So there was like this, honestly, this difficulty reconciling my identities and feeling like I never fit in and trying to fit in somewhere until I realized you know what I don't have to fit in in one place I can be from multiple different identities and so I guess my message is we all have multiple aspects of our our identities it may not just you know may not be similar to mine or that maybe when you've got a dual um, ethnicity and then having you know living in a, another country but it may be for a number of reasons the way you're raised the languages you speak whether you're from a community like LGBT 
LGBTQI uh, plus community or a disabled community. There are so many aspects of our identity and we don't have to put them against each other. We don't have to choose one to identify with. It's the it's how they all work together to create this unique person that you are. And so figuring out that about yourself, I think, is so critical, but also so beautiful. It's gorgeous, but it's such a journey, right? Yeah. I think that was beautiful, what you just said. But it's something that I've actually spoken with probably most of the guests that I've had on the show have had so, like a similar sort of mm. experience, sort of reconciling different parts of your identity and just understanding that you as one is beautiful. Yeah. I like to think of it as a salad. Yeah. So as opposed, because, you know, everyone's always like melting pot, this and that. And I'm like, no, because you sort of have to lose parts of yourself. You don't want to melt any ingredients. What, exactly. <laughs> when you're a salad, everything yeah. sort of works yeah. nicely together. And yeah. you've got this. And you can see it all. And you can see it all. Exactly. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, so I love what you said about, you know, you decided that you just wanted to start volunteering with different organizations and, you know, create or affect social change through that. But I'm also, I guess, aware of the fact that not everyone has the capacity to do this. So what would you say to people who want to help out in whatever capacity that they can? Like, what could they do? You know, as you being an expert in this field, having your own organization, talking to the UN, creating like this incredible refugee youth action plan, what can people do if they wanted to assist? Well, yeah, I mean, it, the issues seem so huge. So when you talk about them in the bigger picture kind of sense, people can be overwhelmed and put off because they you can feel powerless. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't even know where to start. But I think breaking it down and thinking about small things that you could do all the time. So, I mean, I don't know where the people that are listening to this live or what kind of their backgrounds they have or even what ages they are but getting to know the people in your community and I think there will be so many people that you have no idea about that actually have quite a complex you know journey of how they arrived here in Australia so first of all it's simple and I'm sure most people are doing this already but being being open to people's stories and letting people share that experience and in that their own way and then not kind of imposing stereotypical assumptions on what that their life must have been like or which part of the world they are, therefore they must think like this. But in terms of helping in the actual um, you know, practical ways, there are so many, so many organisations that are led by former refugees and migrants, and I know for a fact here in Sydney. Mm. Um, so reaching out to some of those and partnering up with them is a really good idea. There's no point starting new initiatives. There's no point, you know, if you're not someone of refugee background, just starting a, a program without the assistance of those that have have lived experience. But I think it can be so powerful when when people just approach you and say, look, I love what you're doing. Let me get involved. Like if someone reached out to Empower, we would find a way for them to be involved, yeah, whether great. it's through mentoring someone, you know, and you don't realise the social capital you have when you grow up somewhere versus someone that comes in uh, fresh true so even having networks or opportunities um taking them to events with you can expand that their social capital mentoring is a really powerful way to you know 
pass some of your skills on in a really fun, friendly way. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so I think it's just getting involved with organisations and it may not be, you know, you, some people may be time poor and not want to do something very full on. It may just be partnering up on one particular project with an organisation or helping out at one event. Those are all really worthwhile tips. Thank you for those. It's really important to you know, just talk to people. It's one thing, I guess, that I've realised really recently and been reflecting on and it's something that I'm actively trying to incorporate even into my DJ workshop program is actually finding, like understanding that just because we advocate for people of refugee backgrounds, it doesn't make it useless if you do, but have we ever gone out and spoken to someone of a refugee background? That's what I wonder. Because I'll be honest, before my work, like before I started working full time, I probably had maybe, and it's not that it's a competition or anything, but I only knew a few people, like a handful of people that were of refugee backgrounds because I'd either lived with them at some point or I just happened to know them through whatever way. To be honest, mainly during like through the music scene, but it really made me reevaluate my my friendship circles and my surroundings and you know the bubble that I lived in and how I needed to really go out there and make contact with people from community groups that I might not normally liaise with and not in a tokenistic way but just it's so important as you spoke before about diversity of thought having conversations with people if they're willing and open to have these conversations with you, it absolutely opens your own mind and it changes the way that you look at the world as well, which I think is really beautiful. My pleasure. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, it's been fantastic. I'm going to place links to everything that you do and et cetera. Plus, people can have a look. Yeah. That's about it. And people can reach out. I love hearing from new people. Oh, okay. I have people asking about, you know, things that I've done and how they can get involved. And a lot of the things that I've done... I've only found out about and been able to do because someone else did it before me and guided me. So I'm a big believer of, you know, sharing those opportunities and experiences. So if people want to do anything that I've done, I will send you that direction, send you whatever links and applications there are. Definitely. I love that. Thank you so much, Rez. Thank you. Bye, everyone. So again, I did just want to say thank you, Rez, for coming in and doing that interview with me. I'm sure you were very jet-lagged. You've been very busy, but I really appreciate you taking the time. I want to leave you with some Ghanaian modern high life. This is Vis-a-Vis with Obi Agyemidofo. Enjoy. I think you will. I'll see you soon.
and ride.